finishing up this uh, story of the golden calf. Um, and the, the focus really focuses on Moshe. So let's get back to our focus. Moshe, his goal here is to um, allow God to dwell, to dwell amongst the people, which we call the Mishkan. That, that desire of promotion to have God dwell amongst the people um, is pretty clear because in chapter 33 <coughs> Moshe asks God who's going to come with it with me it starts with me it's on page 187 in this translation and then God says I'll go with you and then Moshe says good I'm glad you're going with us <laughs> go with us it's very good this way we'll be distinct from all the other nations God said to Moshe in the 17th Pasuk on page 187 this also I will, I will do I'm not just go with you, but I'll go with them. At which point, Moshe asks God, show me your glory. Kvodecha is an important word, obviously. And what it means is show me your presence. But in particular, the term kavod uh, is a term that often is used with the Mishkan. So harina kvodecha can be understood, I think, as not so much a question the Rambam had Moshe asking God tell me about your essential nature that's how the Rambam understood this the earlier Moshe according to the Rambam in his guide Moshe asked Moshe Rabbeinu asked two questions the first question was teach me your ways your paths and the second question those are two different questions the ways and the name and the and the kavod for the Rambam make, means and the, the, the Rambam says God only responded favorably to one of the two requests. The, the, the difficulty in the Rambam's interpretation I mentioned last week in terms of the simple text of the Chumash it, the Rambam has God's answer to Moshe's first request only after Moshe asked the second request. I mentioned last week without getting to that again I don't believe that's the simple shot of the Chumash at all. But in any event, the Rambam has developing his idea, trying to base it within the Chumash. He says, God's answer to Moshe, and God says to Moshe, I will pass by you. I will pass by you with all my goodness. That's chapter 34. I'm sorry, that's chapter um, 33, uh, verse number 19. I will pass by you, all my goodness. And I will call out the Karati B'Shem Hashem. I will call out the name of God before you, right? I will proclaim before you my name. And in doing so, says God, and I will forgive those that I will forgive, have compassion on those that I will be gracious to those that I will, will be gracious. And then God adds, but you can't see my face. Because a human may not see me and live. That's, that's the explanation, translation we have of the verse. And therefore I will place you in the cleft of the rock. In verse 21, I will pass by, but I will cover you with my hand. I'll, pass, I'll cover you with, with my hand till I have passed. You will see my back, but you won't see my face. For the Rambam, this is how the Rambam understood it. The Rambam understood the following. Moshe had two requests of God. One is 
to know God's ways. The second is to know the nature of God. For the Rambam, God's response, I will pass by you and cover you with my hand and you'll see my back and not my face. For the Rambam, that is an answer to Moshe's first request. In other words, the two requests are tell me the way you function in the world. That's the first request. Okay? And the second request, as the Rambam understands it, is tell me your essential nature. To which God says to Moshe, the human can't grasp my essential nature, but the human can grasp the way I function in the world. And the way I function in the world for the Rambam is actually what we call the Yudgimumidot. Because in the, in the continuation of the story, in chapter 34, when God proclaims God before Moshe and says, Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun, the so-called 13 attributes of mercy, for the Rambam, the 13 attributes of mercy are in answer to Moshe's request earlier, teach me Turachecha, Turachecha, teach me your paths or your ways. Because the Rambam, in his guide, says many interesting things. And here he says that the attributes, the Hashem, Rachum and Chanun, Erech should be understood, the Rambam says, not as describing what God is, because we can't describe what God is at all, but rather describing how God is perceived through God's ways, through God's actions, which the Rambam identifies in his guide, God, in his guide with uh, nature. In his study, or what we would call today science. God says to Moshe, you can't know who I actually am. But if you study science, become a good scientist, and see the world is operating, okay, you see the things that I, the world that I've created, in that way, to that degree, you can say that the world in which I created demonstrates, for the most part, largely demonstrates, uh, it demonstrates uh, compassion. That's how the Rambam sees the world. Now, it's true, there's also, you know, other parts of nature. There's jealousy, there's all that. But fundament- overall, the Rambam thinks that the world demonstrates a demonstration. When you see the world, you can learn from the world that God creates something about God, but you can't directly have knowledge of the nature of God. That's beyond the human being. That's the Rambam. I think it's actually quite ingenious reading of the text. <coughs> Rambam, Maimonides. Let me humbly... The guide is the Maimonides. Let me just humbly say that I don't think it's the Pshat and the Chumash at all for several reasons. And one of them is the, the, one of the weaknesses... Now, here's, here's a different question in general question. When the Rambam writes the guide, he's writing as a Jewish philosopher. He may be, have been the greatest Jewish philosopher. When philosophers cite the Bible, you always have to wonder, are they citing the Bible because they think that it's the Pshat? Or are they citing the Bible as a prop to support something that they actually believe. So that's a question I always have about the Rambam. The difference is that when the Rambam quotes the Chumash very often, he says things that when you read it, you say, you know, somebody could be the Pshad even. It's possible. In this particular case, as unbelievably clever as it is, I think it has a couple of big weaknesses. One is that the way the Rambam understands the Chumash, Moshe is asking, making two requests, and the Rambam has God answering Moshe's first request after Moshe makes the second request. I think that's probably problematic. It sounds much more like, in the simple reading of the Chumash, that the first request was answered. The request was, show me your, your paths. 
Moshe had three requests actually. The first, uh, first two requests are who's going with me, who's going with us, okay? And the second is show me your paths, your ways. And God's response was my face will go with you, I will go with you. I will guide you. So I will guide you, I presume, is related to the word derech. God takes you on the path, right? So therefore, it has a meaning beyond simply walking, but God's saying, I will be with you, I will guide you in terms of the way you are to behave. Trochecha is not about, Moshe is not asking, I don't think, at that point, something about God's basic nature. Moshe is asking God, who's going to teach us the right, the right path, the right way to go? The path of the righteous, the path of the just. God says, I will go with you and I will be your teacher, I will be your guide through the desert. That was the first request. It doesn't sound like God is saying, I'll answer you, I'm going to go with you, I'm going to answer your question. Then when the second question comes, he answers the first question. That I think is a very severe problem. I also think that the Raman's interpretation of Hashem Hashem Kerachim V'chanun, that's for his philosophy, that it refers to the study of the world, the kid won't know anything about God. When you read the Chumash, one does not get that impression. As point number two is that Rambam's request, okay, here the Rambam takes the position in his guide in any event that what Moshe is asking is, I want to understand your basic nature. For the Rambam, show me your presence, is similar to what we saw earlier in the Chumash when the Moshe says to God, the people will say to me, what is his name? What am I to say to them? What, what the and God gives a very strange answer back in the story of the snap. God has two answers. One is, Tell them, sent you. I will be. I am. I am what I am. I am what I will be. I will be what I will be. And then God added, Tell them the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your ancestors, has sent you. For the Rambam, when Moshe says to God, what is your name? Okay? And this is, could be. Moshe is saying, what is your essential nature? That's what a name is in the Chumash, right? Your name is who you are. Who is, who are you? For the Rambam, Moshe Rabbeinu was asking a philosophical question. I want to understand the nature of God. Okay, that's it. But the truth of the matter is, he does have that curiosity. What kind of God is sending me? That, that's his question. But, the, but from, the, from the answer, from God's answer, okay, or maybe God is not telling Moshe the whole story, but the answer of Eiyah, Sher Eiyah, I will be that I will be, okay, the way Rashi understands that, is not, is, sounds like I will be what I will be, is either God saying to Moshe, don't ask me so many questions about my nature, I'm not answering you, that's possible. Whatever I am, I am. Don't ask too many questions. Or Rashi understood it is, I am means, tell them I'm going to be with you forever. I am the eternal God. That's what it means, essentially. I am eternal. So I'm going to be... So Rashi's Medrash says, I'm, I'm, I'm here today with this famous Medrash. God says to Rashi, according to Rashi, God said to Moshe, Tell them, I'm here today in your suffering. I will be with you in the future in your suffering. To which Moshe answers God, what would the, see the Pasuk? The Pasuk has... It's actually an important Pasuk for us. It's about Moshe Rabbeinu. The, it's about God, but Moshe is asking the question. This is back in, in, in the Sneh story. This was in chapter 
chapter 3, chapter, page 117. Very related. See that? Verse number 13, 14, right? Moshe said, I'm going to go to B'nai Israel, and I'm going to say the God of your ancestors has sent, us, sent me, right? They're going to say, what's his name? Who is he? What answer? Who, who is he? What should I say to them? They're going to know it's the God of Abotechem, but they're not going to know who, what your name is. So God says to Moshe, Eyasher Eyeh. Vayomer kotomag of Israel. Eyesh wachani alechem. Tell them, Eyasher Eyeh. And then God said, Tell them, My name is Eyasher Eyeh. Tell them, Eyeh. So Rashi noted something curious about the verse. God first says, My name is Eyeh Asher Eyeh. And then God says, Kotomag of Israel. Tell them, Eyeh sent you. What happened, what happened to the second Eyeh? So Rashi quotes the Medrash, very famous, that Moshe said to God, what is your name? And God said, which for Rashi means, tell them I am, I will be or I am, I'm, I'm here now in their troubles and I'll always be with them in their troubles. So Moshe says to God, what does that mean, what does that mean? What are you talking about future troubles? Right? That's Dayewood Sarbash. The English, the equivalent in English is sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. That's not familiar to you? No? In Run Cheder? It's one of the Gospels. Very famous. Sufficient to the day, you never heard that expression? Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. It means let's, don't, don't worry about the future troubles. Let's, let's have troubles right now. It's playing off the Hebrew. Dayewood Sarbashaita. So Moshe says to God, do me a favor, don't talk about the future Tsaras. To which God says, okay, tell them Eyyah. Tell them I'm, I'm with them now when they're suffering. That's how Rashi understand, understands it, taking out the second Eyyah. But the, the point I'm making about Rashi is that Rashi understands it not as a philosophical... Gee, the people are going to come to me and say, can you prove God's existence? An ontological argument, you know, argument from design or whatever. Doesn't, Rashi says, what? Rashi never heard of those things. People would ask you a simple question. God is going, the God of your ancestors, and they're saying, in what, in, what, in what aspect is God coming to us? This God, of, right, God, this God sent you. What did he send you for? What, why? What, what, what? Tell them, the God who sent you is the God who's, who's, who's going to be with them. That's how Rashi understands it. But the question, Moshe still does ask the question, what should I tell them about you? He still talks about the nature of God, okay? And then God says to Moshe in the next verse, let me tell you something. Say to the people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent you, right? That's my name forever. That's how I should be recalled and mentioned in every generation. Says Dar. that's very curious because Moshe said to God in verse number seven, uh, verse number 13, they're going to say to me, the God of your ancestors, Right? I'm going to say to them, the God of your ancestors sent me. They're going to say, what's his name? So God's answer is very strange. First God says, I'll give you a name. But this is what you should say to them. Say to them, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent me. That's my name. That's how I want to be mentioned. But Moshe already says, I'm going to go and tell them the God of the ancestors sent me. So, so what God seems to be saying is, don't worry about the other stuff. Tell them, uh, tell them about their, tell them about the, the Abotechem. Tell them, as we explained earlier, tell them, I am the God of their, of their, of their, of their, of their, of their vote. 
Tell them maybe it means that they have a vote. Tell them they have a connection to the past. Tell them God hints at what's going to happen today is a function of the connection in the past. In any event, the point I'm making is that Moshe's request of God in chapter 3, verse number 13, what is your name? What should I say to them? The Rambam tied in, very appropriately I think, obviously, with Moshe's request over here about God, teach me your ways, your paths, and then show me your glory. For the Rambam, show me your glory is a way of I want to, I want to experience God's presence. And the Rambam thinks towards an end of understanding who you are. Now, in, in, we could say to the Rambam, I'm not sure the Rambam says this, maybe the Rambam is thinking, if, I, if, if my goal is to bring the people to God, then I have to understand the God that I'm bringing them towards. Who, you want me to, be, make, to teach them to be God's servants, to God's community, covenant and all that. Who is the God to whom they are connecting? That's, I think, along the lines of the Rambam. And Moshe's request, fundamentally, is a request about... Moshe is the great philosopher for the Rambam. He's the great intellect. The Rambam, of course, values that, obviously. He tries to read all that into the Chumash. That's the Rambam. There is another way to read the text, however, which I think is close, much closer to the Pshat, which is, is not so much about understanding God fully, comprehending God, but it's more Moshe's saying something else, which is, I asked you to come with us. That's his first request. I want you to come with us. Okay? Now we're back to 34. Yeah, 34. That's our basic yeah. chapter, right? We right. just digressed to chapter 3 because yeah. it's related. It's very interesting also. Yeah. That was the beginning of his career. This is later in his career. And now Moshe says to God, you said you're going to come with us. You're going to come with me. You're going to come with them. So what I would like you to do now, we have this agreement. Show me your glory means I want to experience your presence. That is to say, and experience your presence now, it's a way of sort of clinching the deal. It's sort of like, I'll give you an example. It's sort of like you buy a house, let's say. You buy a piece of land. Gemara Mishnah says you can buy a piece of land and if, the, the different modes of acquisition. And according to the Mishnah, according to Gemara, you have to do something to acquire something. Just agreeing to do it is not sufficient. That's to be what they call Kenyan. One way to acquire a piece of land is to pay for it. So it's a million dollar property. How much money do you have to hand over to acquire the property? So you don't have to pay all the money, actually. But, maybe only pay a very small amount of money, and the rest becomes a, a debt. The rest becomes an obligation. But you acquire the land now. You acquire the land when you start to pay. Even though, you don't, even though you have, if you don't pay, then the, the, the deal is off. But if you do pay, you can schedule a, a whole set of payments. But the initial money that you give is the acquisition. Because in a certain sense, you could understand it as that it's a demonstration of, what's, of, of what is to follow. And that symbolic demonstration of what is to follow is sufficient to clinch the deal. I use it as an analog. Don't take it so seriously, but the, but the analog is this, that over here, Moshe says, you agree to come with us. You're going to come with me, you're going to come with them. So right now, reveal your glory to me now, and this will demonstrate the mode in which you have agreed, God, to travel with us from here on in forever. 
And the problem is very simple. But there's a problem with that. The problem is that God had said earlier to Moshe, I can't go with the people. Because if I travel with the people, I'll get angry because they'll do bad things and I'll destroy them. That's the reason God said I'm not going with them. So the problem the Chumash now addresses is how has Moshe, Moshe solved the problem? Moshe has twisted God's arm, as it were, and God agrees to go with people because God loves Moshe. We got all that. Okay, but how do we solve the problem that when God gets angry at the people who will sin, no doubt, because they sheoref, then God will destroy them. So Moshe turns to God and says, okay, show me your glory, but the Chumash, but Moshe doesn't seem to have an answer as to how that's possible. The answer is supplied by God. Show me your glory in a way that you can live with us. And God says to Moshe, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reveal my presence to you. But not all of my presence to you. In verse number 19, I will pass by you with with all my goodness. Right? I'm not going to reveal my entire presence to you. Because nobody, not even you, Moshe, can see me and, and, and live. And therefore, I'm not going to reveal all of my presence, but the, the presence that I will reveal to you, says God, in verse number 19, when I proclaim, I'm going to appear, appear before you, I'm going to proclaim, Karati B'Shem Hashem I'm going to proclaim God's name before you. And then God adds, I will be gracious towards those to whom I shall be gracious and I will be merciful to those to whom I shall be merciful. In other words, that the qualities of God that, the Chumash, that God identifies with God's revelation are two in this verse. The first is the word Rachum, Chanun, I'm sorry. The first is the word Chanun and the second is the word Rachum. Chanun and Rachum. So graciousness and mercy. And Hanun and Rachum, as we'll see in one moment, are two of the first of the qualities of, of the Yud Gibbum Midot. Hashem Hashem, Kel Rachum V'Chanun. But I'm not going to reveal myself with everything. I'm going to only reveal to you, and therefore to them, uh, part, of, part of my being. Okay, that's what God says over here. And now, this is how it's going to happen over here. When I pass by you, even experiencing God, when I come by, when I pass by, I'm going to do it in the following way. This probably understood metaphorically, but Moshe, you're placed in the rock. I'm going to cover your, cover your face with my hands. very anthropomorphic. I cover your face with my hands, right? And you will see my back and you won't see my face. That means you'll see only a glimpse of me. You'll see my, whatever back and face means, maybe it means you'll see, the, you'll see what you can appreciate God afterwards. You can, you, can, you can scrutinize what is happening and maybe from what's happened already you can reach some kind of conclusion about God. But you can't see me beforehand. You can't grasp the fullness of God. But in any event, the important point over here is that you, God will reveal God's presence to Moshe, but Moshe will always glimpse part of the presence and not all of the presence. So the argument I would make here is that this is the solution, actually, to the problem that's raised in the beginning of this chapter. Namely, God said to Moshe, I can't go with you, the people, because they're going to sin, and I will destroy them when they sin. So better I, I, not, I, not, I not go with you. Not go with you means there won't be a Mishkan. 
So people were all mourning and crying and mourning, etc. And now God and God wants to make it happen somehow. And Moshe wants to make it happen. Everybody. So how do you do this? And the answer is, the solution will be for God to travel with the people, but not with all of God's elements. Only with some of God's elements. The two that the Torah singles out in chapter 33. Okay. Now, let us remember that the story of the golden calf, when Moshe smashes the tablets, he broke the luchot. When Moshe broke the luchot, what happens is you can't build the Mishkan. That's the really significance of breaking the tablets is you can't build the Mishkan. It's a very obvious point. Most people don't see that. They forget that point. That's what the story is about, building the Mishkan. To God to live with us. But God can't live with us. God lives in the Mishkan. The key vessel of the Mishkan are the tablets. The tablets are the work of God. Only the tablets are the work of God. But there are no tablets. When God now says, I will reveal my glory to you, that must mean that there's going to be a Mishkan. But how can there be a Mishkan? We have no Luchot. So that's the next verse. That's chapter 34, verse number 1. God said to Moshe, carve for yourself two tablets of stone. It's a verse that we could have written ourselves, actually, because it has to be. Because since God has just said, I will travel with you, and that means the Mishkan, how could there be a Mishkan? The Luchot is smashed. So God, Moshe says, God says to Moshe, no. Make Carve for yourself two stone tablets. And I will write on these tablets all the things. So God is agreeing to give Moshe the tablets. The giving Moshe the tablets has two functions, both of which are very important. The first I mentioned, when God gives Moshe the new tablets, it's possible to build the Mishkan. That's function number one. Then there's function number two. The tablets themselves are known in the Chumash as Shnei Tabrit, the tablets of the covenant. We have, when Moshe breaks the tablets, one could say he breaks the covenant. If you don't want to say he breaks the covenant, you could say he suspends the, the covenant. The Ramban, in describing the breaking of the tablets, says, as if the ta- as if the covenant were broken. And Rabbi Lichtenstein, to my first Rabbi Shir, he liked the following expression: as it as it uh, as it were. He would say all the time, as it were. He did as it were break 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 break. I mean, he always used that term, as it were. As it were, is a way to hedge. In other words, did Moshe break the covenant? Did he break the covenant? The Ramban says, as, as if he broke the covenant. He didn't really totally break the covenant. Let's say he suspended it. Okay, whatever. The point is, so now when Moshe is told you can make two new tablets, so there's a restoration of the covenant. Covenant will be restored. Okay, so they have two functions, simultaneous functions. Restoration of covenant and allowing the tabernacle, to, the Mishkan, to be built. That's what God says to Moshe. Here on verse number 1 of chapter 34, we have to add another interesting point about chapter 34, verse 1. And that is, we notice immediately a difference between the first tablets and the second tablets. The first tablets, when Moshe comes down the mountain, the Chumash said, 
והרוחות מעשה אלוהים אימה והמכתב מכתב אלוהים הוא חרות על הרוחות. פרס פסוק פרשת המסדם למאלתם, מה זה חמש שתיים? And the writing was the writing of God inscribed upon the tablets. So the tablets in chapter 32 are, are described as the work of God. The writing is the writing of God. Over here in chapter 34, verse number 1, God said to Moshe, Moshe, Moses, carve for yourself two tablets. Right? And I will write on the tablets what I wrote on the first tablet. So the second tablet, it seems to say, the writing is the writing of God. But the construction of the tablets, Moshe does that. So the second Luchot suggests something very interesting, which is sort of central to Jewish tradition, and that is that the new tablets, what it suggests is the following point, which is certainly true to our tradition, our basic rabbinic tradition. The difference between the first Luchot and the second Luchot. Actually, the Pshat and Chumash. I would say the first Luchot, topic is Moshe Rabbeinu. Who is Moshe Rabbeinu? Moshe Rabbeinu, when we stand before Mount Sinai, Moshe Rabbeinu, I would call him, no insult intended to our Rebbe, but he's a glorified messenger boy, is what he is. What is Moshe Rabbeinu? He's going to go up, he's going to get the tablets, he brings them down. In fact, the, many Mepharshim suggest that when Moshe is standing on the mountain and God says, go warn the people a second time. The Abarbanel says this. Go warn the people a second time. They shouldn't get too close. And Moshe says, I warned them already once. And God said to Moshe, just before the tent, go warn them again. So Moshe goes down to warn them. And also a voice cries out, I am the God who took you out of Egypt. Where was Moses during the Ten Commandments? So Mo- many Mepharshim say he was downstairs. He wasn't on the mountain. So, and that God, the Abarbanel goes so far as to say, that Dafka, God was saying to Moshe, you better go down with the people. Because you're one of the people. Yes, you were hired, I, I chose you, I coerced you into taking a difficult job, and you're going to bring the Torah to the people. Okay, you're going to bring it to the people. I don't want to use UPS or FedEx, I'll use you instead. But your role is to be a messenger boy to deliver my Torah to the people, and during the Ten Commandments you're with them anyway. That may be true or not in the first set of Luchot, but in the second set of Luchot it's not true. In the second Luchot, it's completely different. This is a very, this is a very good way to end the, the year, because, not the year, but before Shavuot, which is the holiday of Matan Torah. The second tablets are different. First of all, in the second tablets, the Torah says what happened. Moshe comes down the mountain the second time, after he gets the Torah the second time. He goes up again for 40 days. He comes down at the end of chapter 34. What does the Torah tell us when Moshe comes down the mountain this time? Not the first time he came down. So he comes down the mountain, his face is radiant. Karan or Panav. His face is radiant. He didn't know it. But when he comes down the mountain, his face is shining. To the extent that people are afraid to go near him. Everybody's afraid to go near him. So what does he do? The Chumash says, we'll see this today, hope we get there. And for most of the time when he's with the people, he's down, I'm not on the top of the mountain. He's not talking to God, he talks to the people. He's wearing a, uh, a, a mask. He might, we don't think of it this way. He's always wearing a mask because his face is all so bright. So he has to cover his face, he has to wear a mask. The only time he appears not to wear a mask, actually, well, there are two times. One is when he talks to God, takes off his mask. But it would also appear in the Chumash 
that when he's teaching the people, he's telling the people what God said, he also is not wearing his mask. He, he wears his mask in between. But my point is, the Chumash never said that when Moshe came down the mountain the first time, his face is shining. There's no intimation whatsoever that his face is shining the first time. What's the, why is his face shining the second time and it's not shining the first time? So, I mean, the Chumash doesn't tell us. We have to assume it's not. The difference is the following. He's become a different person the second time. For many reasons. But one of them is, is this. And this is actually very central to our tradition. So I emphasize this. The idea that the Torah in here is not just in God, but in here is actually in, uh, in, in people. The idea that the, the people studying and teaching Torah, that somehow they have a, they, they have a portion in, in, in transmitting, I would say, in even interpreting the Torah. The idea of Torah Shabbat Peh, which means that human beings are partners with God in determining what is Torah. It's a remarkable idea. There's an interpretive tradition. When does Moshe become the interpreter of Torah and not just the messenger boy? It's when he comes down the second time. When he comes down the second time, there we have in the Chumash, tells us that Moshe teaches everybody. Right? Earlier today he told them what God said. But this idea, found at the end of chapter 34, rather remarkable idea, that people are afraid to, to go near him. And that Moshe calls different people in and commands them and tells them what to do. And that the tablets he carries down, he himself made, not God. But he makes the tablets. The idea of this partnership, that he becomes, he becomes a teacher and he actually is, becomes to some extent a determinant, not just to go to God and to find out what the rule is, but somehow he becomes, this is where our, our tradition takes all this. The tradition, it's an interesting and very important point about the Jewish tradition, at its core is the idea that the teacher actually becomes the owner, as it were, of the Torah. This is a fundamental idea that appears in the Talmud in several places. Um, the most striking of which I think is the Gemara Kedushin, which is a little ex- exegesis on the verse in Psalms, the first, the first Psalm. Happy is the one who walks in God's path. It says, Ki im Hashem He doesn't do like the others. Said, Rather, b'torat Hashem His chayfet, his desire, is for, is for God's Torah. And he engages in his Torah day and night. The simple reading of the text, refers to the first half of the verse. He loves God's Torah. And with his, i.e. God's Torah, he engages day and night. But the Gemara understands it differently. They translate the verse in Kedushan this way. Interpretation. He desires God's Torah. That's the first thing. In his Torah, first of the person. He engages in his Torah day and night. So the Gemara says, one second, is it God's Torah or is it his Torah? So it depends, the Gemara says. Before you study it, it's God's Torah. And once you study it, it's your Torah. That's the Gemara in Kedushin. And that is a drush, which is not just a little drush, you know, for a little sermon, sermonette. That's something very basic in that tradition. Nothing's more basic. It's the idea of an oral tradition, that the, the interpreters, basically, are determining what is Torah. That is coming, they, they, they see this as coming out of Moshe Rabbeinu, who's the great teacher, but not the first time, but only the second time, and that's the idea of Karan or Panav, that his face is shining. In any event, getting back to our verse, make for yourself two new tablets, that's actually very instructive. 
And now God tells to Moshe, and there's something else now in the continuation of chapter 34. Now we continue. Be prepared, prepare yourself for the morning. Tomorrow morning, get ready for the morning. In the morning you will ascend Mount Sinai. And you will stand there. Stand there for me, probably means stand there. Can they translate, present yourself there to me, right? Stand there before me on the top of the mountain. Then God adds, No person is to go up with you. No person shall be on the entire mountain. Not only that, the animals may not graze before the mountain. Nobody's, you have to go completely alone. So, yeah, it's true that the first time Moshe goes up, he goes further up. Sounds like maybe the priests went a certain distance, the people stand by the mountain. In this, in this case, it sounds like he goes in totally alone. And it's not even clear that anybody has the, the, a sense that Moshe is, uh, that Moshe is, uh, is there. Right? You just go totally, tomorrow morning you come up, no one else is to be there whatsoever. Right? That's what it sounds like. I'm sorry. Chapter 34, 34, verses 1, 2, and 3. I'm sorry. That's how it begins. This is, yeah. this is the chapter of immense importance over here. Right. Then it says, by verse 4, Moshe does what God has commanded him to do in verse number 4. Vayif sol, shnei uchot avanim karishonim, vayashkem baboker. It's also interesting, by the way, that here, there's something else interesting. Moses got up, Moses hewed for himself the tablets. He got up in the morning. He went up to the mountain. As God commanded him. And he took the tablets of stone. What's interesting is the first time he went up to the mountain. It's interesting. The Torah says that he went the first time to the mountain. Chapter 24. Well, it's, let's say chapter 24. He goes up to get, Let's say chapter 24. He goes up to the mountain. And in chapter 24, he goes up alone. But there in chapter 24, when he gets up, he takes with him somebody to the foot of the mountain. Yoshua. Yoshua goes with him in chapter 24 and waits for him at the bottom of the mountain. And often when someone is traveling, like an important person is traveling, they take with them somebody. You have it with Abraham at the Akeda. You have it with Bilam uh, in the story of Bilam when he goes. You have it with, King, with Shaul when he's going to search for the lost uh, donkeys. He takes a nara with him. We have it with Jonathan and David when he sends the signal to David. He takes, I'm going to bring my nara with me. Then often you have a, on a journey, you take somebody with you to accompany you at least part of the way. The arcade is the best example. But here, there's no mention of anybody whatsoever. The idea of complete and total aloneness over here, that only Moses is going. And he has a completely different status that's very central over here. So Moshe goes... He has these two tablets, which he himself has hewn, tablets of stone. God descended in a cloud. God descends in a cloud. In God, literally, God stands there with him. God stands there, Sham. God stands there with him in that sacred space. And God proclaimed God's name. Here you have a play in the Chumash, which we have in many places, on two words. They come together typically in the context of a temple. One word is shame, a name, and the other word is sham. Sham and shame. 
typically they come together in a sacred or important place. They come together also in another story which is related to that, the Tower of Babel. There you have a constant play on shame and sham. They gathered sham, right? And they say, Nasalanu shame. Let's make for ourselves a name. False temple, one might say. So here we have this, this event over here, Moses ascending a mountain with these tablets which he himself has hewn. Waiting for God, he's going to hand them over to God to write. And that God is standing, the two are standing together. And that God is proclaiming God's name to Moses. Hashem Hashem. And the next verse, And God passed by, before him, let's say before Moses, simple reading, and proclaimed, God is proclaiming, Hashem Hashem, Kerachum Vichanun, Erech Apayim, Rav Chesed Vemet, Notzer Chesed Ulavafim, Noseyavon Vafesha Vachat Avinake, Avinake Goyenake, Pokeda Bonavot Abonim, Shiwashim, Viari Beim. Here you have God proclaiming something about God. Hashem Hashem, God is Hashem Hashem, Rachum Chanun, Keo Rachum Chanun, Erech Apayim, Rav Chesed Vemet, etc. But we're not totally absolved. Visits the sin of the children, parents upon the children, even the grandchildren, three and four generations. This is what is what is God doing over here? This is very this event of God appearing, God and Moses meeting on the top of the mountain, and God calling out God's name, and God proclaiming before Moses. This, this, this list of, of attributes of God. What do we call this? We have a word for this. What is this basically? One word. What is it? This is in our tradition we call slichot. This is the slichot service. This is primarily written for Yom Kippur. And then derivatively there's a custom to recite slichot even before Yom Kippur. Even before Rosh Hashanah and the Sephardim even Chodesh Elul. But fundamentally the slichot are written for Yom Kippur. This is the um, this is the core prayer of the Yom Kippur service. Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanim. If it's the core prayer of the Yom Kippur service, it must mean one thing: that the rabbis of old thought it to be a very important story. They wouldn't have chosen it otherwise for Yom Kippur. They saw it as a central story, which is Yom Kippur is about repentance and about forgiveness, and they saw this as the central the point in the entire episode <coughs> of the golden calf this is the way God this is the forgiving God who will dwell with the people and I would add to this something else that I'm trying to remember now we're in the high holiday service we have this hold on it's in the Sikho service how's it go there? Kikel Chanun Vrachum Shemecha, we say in Rabbi. Kikel Chanun Vrachum Shemecha. Uman Shimcha Hashem Vesorachto Ravoneinu Kiravu. I believe it's the lead in paragraph to the Slichot. Uman Shimcha, it's part of the Slichot service. We say, we say to God, we appeal to you, Kikel Chanun Vrachum Shemecha. Because your name is Chanun Vrachum. That line in the Slichot service, that God's name is Chanun Vrachum, is extremely interesting. I about this yesterday, actually. I say it all the time. It's very instructive. This is the answer to what Moshe had asked earlier. Tell me your name. 
What is God's name? So God earlier said to Moshe, Eyyasher Eyyah. My name is Eyyah. But God didn't say more than that. Eyyah, Eyyasher Eyyah, we can translate as, I will be what I will be. I am that I am. It's often translated. I am that I am. The eternal one who is eternal. Okay? That Eyyah, the name Eyyah, has a striking similarity to another name of God. yud hey vav However it's pronounced. yud hey vav the eternal one. Probably has yud hey vav and, 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 and it's very similar to the word Yehiyah or Hoveh. Ha-ya Hoveh That's the name Hashem. The name Hashem, as we don't say the name, but name Hashem means the, the God who is forever, the God who is eternal, the God who is past, present, and future. So Eyyeh is very similar to that, actually. But God didn't spell out fully what that means. What, what is your basic nature? Over here, God is spelling out, God is proclaiming God's name. You ask me my name, I'll tell you my name. The name of Hashem is But I would add to this another point. I may have mentioned this last week. That coupled with the name of God over here, is something else, which is God is Moshe says to God, "Who's going to Who's going to go with us? Who's going to travel with us? And how can you travel with us?" We ask, since you're going to get angry and destroy us. To which God's answer is, "I am going to travel with you, but I'm not going to travel with you in the aspect of God's fullness, because that's can't you won't survive. The only way I can travel with you is a diminished God, is a contracted God. The qualities of the Mishkan." The God who travels with us in the Mishkan is the God of mercies and kindnesses, etc. Rachum v'chanu. I'll get more to the details of the Midos in a second, but, it, but I, I want to make a very important point. I didn't mention this here. It's a point that Jacob Milgram emphasizes very strongly in his, in his commentary on Vayikra. He's like this 2,000-page commentary on Vayikra. And what Milgram argues for, among other things, is this. I think it's a simple shot in the Chumash, actually. That the Mishkan... It's not just that God travels with us, but the Mishkan is the vehicle to atone for all the sins of Israel. The Mishkan is the place where you bring all your, your offerings, your sin offerings. Your so the Mishkan itself is the way that Israel can be forgiven is because we have a Mishkan. <laughs> but the problem with the Mishkan is that the Mishkan can be a forgiving presence as long as it remains pure. Once the Mishkan becomes contaminated, you can't it won't serve its purpose. And the Mishkan can become contaminated. The main way the Mishkan can become contaminated is what the Chumash says in Sefer Vayikra. I've warned them not to sin. Hizatem et Yisrael mitumotam. Hizatem means keep them far away from their impurities. Right? Because otherwise, and they shouldn't contaminate my temple that, that is within them. So the pshat is, if they sin, wherever they may be, the sins of Israel <coughs> contaminate the temple. If they contaminate the temple, then the temple won't be able to be a forgiving presence because the temple is contaminated itself. So how do you make sure the temple is not contaminated? How do you make sure the temple is not contaminated? The answer is that once a year, there's a service which is, whose main purpose is to cleanse the temple performed on Yom Kippur. When you look at the Chumash, you will see it's what the Chumash actually says, black on white. 
don't need any great erudition to see it. Just read it. Chumash says about the service once a year, sprinkling of the blood in the Holy of Holies and on the curtains and on the incense altar. Mikdash shall atone for Mikdash at the Holy Temple. Viet Olamoed and the place of meeting, Viet and should atone for the altar, right? And also should atone for the congregation. The first thing the Chumash mentions is to atone for the temple. So actually something very, very interesting about the, our tradition. So Yom Kippur, the function of Yom Kippur in the Chumash in Vayikra is to make sure that the temple remains pure so the temple can become a, 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 a forgiving presence because the God of the temple is the God of Rachel V'chanel. But it's also true that what allows God to, be, to travel with us is the fact that God is coming in the guise of Rachel V'chanel. And all this is coupled in the Chumash with Moshe receiving the Torah. Moshe, is going to get, Moshe has a second set of tablets. The second set of tablets in our... It's not in the text. The Chumash never says when Moshe got the second set of tablets. But our tradition makes a claim when did Moses receive the second Ruchot? When is, Moshe's, when is Moshe taught Hashem Hashem Kerachem B'chanun? It's Yom Kippur. Receiving of the Torah takes place Yom Kippur. First, the first Torah was on Shavuos. But the, the, the Midrashic tradition, the Rabbinic tradition, has Moshe receiving the Torah on Yom Kippur. It's one of the reasons this is the central service for Yom Kippur. What's also interesting is that the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur is what allows God to continue in this way. Otherwise, if you don't atone for the temple, God can... In other words, God's presence in the temple is what allows the sins of Israel to be forgiven. In this respect, we come here to chapter 34, verses number 8 and 9. After Moshe is revealed the Yud Gimel Midot, I'll talk about them in a minute, some of the Midot, Vayimaher Moshe, Moshe Hari, Vayikot Arta Vayishtach, when he bows down, Vayomer, this is verse number 9, he said, Imna Motzati Chen B'Yenechel Hashem, O God, if I have found Chen, that key word, in your eyes, Yelech Na Hashem B'Kirbeinu, please God dwell, dwell amongst us, in this way, B'Kirbeinu, amongst us, stiff-necked people for they are a stiff-necked people and you will forgive our sins and our chatoim and take us for your inheritance what is the meaning of God reveals to Moses these attributes and Moshe says walk amongst us walk amongst us in Mishkan Dwell amongst us, God. Kiam So the JPS translates. How does the JPS translate? No, no. With stiff neck is not the word. I'm interested in the word key. Oh, key. I'm sorry. Key. Even though. Even though. So even though. We just mentioned this, right? For, for JPS, it's even though. Key can mean even though sometimes. The JPS is bothered by a very simple problem. What do you mean you should dwell amongst us? But how can God dwell amongst us? God said they're stiff-necked. So JPS has Moshe saying, they are stiff-necked. Nonetheless, whatever, we'll deal, that, we'll deal with those problems later. Right now we need you amongst us. 
That's the JPS translation. But the other translation I mentioned, I want to repeat this very important point, and that is, it doesn't mean even though. Usually the word key means because. And the point then is, Moshe says to God, because this stiff neck, I want you to dwell amongst us. So we ask the question, what do you mean because? God said earlier, I can't be with them because they're stiff-necked. Now Moshe says, you must come with us because they're stiff-necked. Isn't that it? What sense does that make? But the answer is clear. The God who spoke earlier was a different God. That was God talking about a God who was going to judge us. So you're right, we're going to be a judge. We don't want to judge amongst us because we're going to fail the test. But Moshe is saying something different. Now that you agree to travel with us as a God of mercy, the contrary, we need you to be with us as a God of mercy because we're stiff-necked. We know we're going to sin, and that's why we want you. Because your presence will f- enables us to forgive our sins. Because the merciful God will help forgive our sins. So Adarabba, we need that you as a merciful God travel with us. And God says affirmatively, Yes, I make a covenant. God, God agrees. And we'll get to that God agreement in a second. So this is actually, if this is true, it's very interesting that what Moshe has accomplished over here, the deeper point is that Moshe has, in order to reconcile the two parties, Moshe has extracted a major concession out of God. And the major concession is, I travel with you in a different aspect, a different God. Moshe says, you can't, we, we can't, we can't, if you're going to stay you're the same old God, you, we, we, can't, we, we, we can't live together. So you, we know you're the other God. We know that. That's, you're a hidden God. We know that there's your God of truth. We got all that. That's very lovely in the upper stratosphere. But in this world, if you appear as a God of truth, we're going to be sunk. A God of just judgment, we're sunk. So appear with, primarily, you have to travel with us as a Rachman V'chanu. To which God says, I agree. That's the conversation. Yes? Just go back a little to the beginning of 34. I'm thinking God, in a certain way, is making his own tablets right not someone else's right the truth is the people do seem to know later on that Moshe and he's away for 40 days by the way I, let's see I believe it says 40 days later as well I believe so let me see yes it says in verse 28 he was with God so he may have told them it sounds like he actually t- tells them although you're right it's not clear over here I mean logic would say that he would tell them the text is not explicit which is, is an interesting point that he actually, the idea that he's more invested is certainly true, there's no question about that. But even if he was less invested, he still said to God, if you destroy them, destroy me as well. So he seems to be fully 
takes full responsibility for the people. Yeah, all that is true. I, the idea, I spoke about the investment and from a different standpoint, the Torah is becoming his, not just... And let me get to some of these, just in terms of the, the attributes and, and what Moshe, Moshe says to God over here. So I, if I said this stuff already, I'm not gonna, I don't want to repeat it. The, there are two interesting... Remind me, in fact, because I'm giving a lot of classes now, one similar, just worked out that way. I don't want to repeat. So in the so-called attributes, the, the, we know them as good given we don't. The searching attributes of God's midot, um, or the attributes of God's mercy. There are two problems. Number one, we can't figure out how to get to 13. That's number one. There are about six different opinions. How do you get to 13? And number two... That's the red... Yud Gimel Midot is ancient. Ancient. Okay. That's ancient. And there's other... Actually, not only is it ancient, but actually my wife wrote an article where she points out that one of the chapters in the Talmud constantly plays off the number 13. The idea of 13 Midot, by the way, it's also in another... You say it all the time. Once, twice a year, once a year, depending where you are. A Jewish song most people know in this room. I bet everybody knows it, actually. Echad miyodeya. You know the song Echad miyodeya? Mm-hmm. In the Haggadah? Yes. I write about it in my Haggadah. It goes from number from one to what? How many, how many numbers does it have? Echad miyodeya. Thirteen. Each one. Who knows one? Who knows two? Who knows three? What is, what is thirteen? Shosha three. Midaya. What a Midaya? Midot. You give me Midot. The thirteen attributes of God. It ends with, I talk in my God about this, why, why it ends, why it went to 13. It's a usual number, actually. It goes to 13. It goes to the Yomi Dot, Echabi Yodeya. But it's, it, the 13 is ancient. Echabi Yodeya is not ancient. Actually, it's probably a medieval song. Maybe even a late medieval song. No, no one knows exactly, but, but, but it's, way, it's way before that. It's ancient. So, but the problem is, how do you get to 13? That's one problem. One second. The second problem is, are they all attributes of mercy? There are two things here that don't appear, don't appear to be attributes of mercy. What do you want to say? I just want to say it's also a problem counting the Aserat Azibro. That's correct, it is. Aserat Azibro is a similar problem. I think there's a simple solution to that one, but you're right. They don't appear to be ten... How do we have the ten so-called commandments? The Chumash never called them ten mitzvot, by the way. It said the ten things. Then Aserat Azibro. Now, if... I think there is actually a simple solution to it, and I can't get into that now, but you're right, but you're right, it's true. The ten debrot, how do you get to ten? That's a good question. As far as the me don't, it really is a problem, it's very unclear. But the other question is, they're called, known in certain, it's called sometimes, the attributes of God's mercy, midot rachamim, and yet there are two things here that don't appear to be midot rachamim. The first is, that in verse number 6, it mentions, among all the others, emet. It mentions truth. Emet and rachamim are not the same. One might say they're even sort of opposite. So that's number one. And number two, what follows is, God is kind for the thousands of generations. However, God does not totally uh, find innocent those who are without innocence. In fact, God visits the sins of the parents up into the third and fourth generation. Visiting the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation does not appear that we would call Midata Rachamim. So therefore, there are two things in these Yudgimu Midot which do not appear to be Rachamim. Now, you could answer me and say very simply, okay, that's true. True. 
they're not all rachamim, but they are preponderantly rachamim. And even over here, God may visit the sins of a certain fourth generation, but it says God remembers the kindnesses for thousands of generations. So there's an imbalance. One is a thousand, and one is three. So that's pretty good, you know. We got the, the odds are on our side. What's interesting is several things about the Yud Gimel Several things are very, actually very interesting. Let me just take a few minutes. Not because it's... I mean, it's important in general. Yud Gimel Midot, or the Srichos, central to our prayers. The liturgy is very basic. We say them all the time. So I want to say a couple of things about the Yud Gimel Midot. And then to focus on the relevance to the Chumash, which is important. First of all, let me say something about the word emet. The word emet can mean truth. Usually means truth. But it's not at all clear when you read the Yud Gimel Midot that emet means truth. Because there's another way to read Rav Chesed Ve'emet. God abounds in Chesed and Emet. The word emet in the book of Breshit I don't remember if it appears ever by itself, but it appears at least in two at least in two places, together with the word Chesed. For example, when Jacob is, before he dies, he calls in his son Joseph. He says to Joseph, "My son, end of chapter forty-seven, do me a big favor. When I die, I don't want to be buried in the land of Egypt. Yosita imodi Chesed ve'emet, do with me Chesed and Emet, and not take bereni b'mitzrayim or." When the servant is sent by Abraham, parallel story actually, to find a wife for his son Isaac. And he goes to the well. And he, at the well he says, please, he says, and then he has a test he sets up. The woman who says, I'll give water to you and your camels. And then Rifka comes out, chapter 24. And after Rifka comes out, and she passes the test right away, the servant has a little prayer. It's in chapter 24, 45, 45, yes. Verse number, page 44 actually. Right? The servant says, Baruch Hashem, Blessed is the God who is not abandoning Chesed and Emet from my master. Now, right, the servant actually in his prayer also mentions Chesed. He doesn't mention Emet. When he's answered, he says Chesed Vemet. I would say Chesed Vemet, Chasto, in those two cases, after we have Chesed and Emet together, and Chesed and Amet, I think there is better translated, not kindness and truth, but rather, Amet is a qualifier of the Chesed. It's a, a true kindness. We have in modern parlance the expression Chesed Shel Amet, referring to a Hebrew Kadisha. They do Chesed Shel Amet, a true kindness, because you don't get repaid for that. That person is not going to thank you. So, Chesed Shel Amet. So, in that Yud Gimel Midot, you can read it as Rav Chesed ve'emet, who abounds in not, chesed, not kindness and truth, but Chesed ve'emet, like the Chesed ve'emet of Genesis, which is 
a true, a true kindness. I would say true kindness, a permanent kindness. In the case of Abraham, in the case of Jacob, do for me a chesed ve'emet, a kind of, a, a kind of a, abiding kindness, because it's something that affects me after, after, after I die. And you're going to do the kindness to me, because you're remembering the way... I, the, after I die, we have no connection. But the connection is before I die. And I would ask you to do a chesed ve'emet, that even after I'm dead, I'm not here anymore, but I'm still with you and you're going to do kindness with me. Same thing with the servant in Abraham. He leaves Abraham's presence, he goes to a faraway land. Oh God, I'm so grateful you did chesed ve'emet for my master. You didn't abandon him. So one could interpret chesed ve'emet in the Yidimumidot, that it's all kindnesses, but the emet is a qualifier of chesed and not a standalone attribute. That's a possibility. Although, what is clear is that in other texts of the Bible, I think they're taking emet to be truth. I don't have the time to go into Maybe if we have a couple of minutes later, I'll explain that. What about the other part? What about the fact that God visits the sins upon the grandchildren, great-grandchildren? So first of all, let me point out something which is so interesting. You know, I'll tell you the truth. If you don't know anything, you're better off sometimes. You know what I mean? Because you got no problems. you got no problems. So, ignorance is bliss, you know? But if, the more you know, as Kohelet said, Yosif Dat, Yosif Machov, you have problems. For example, when we are saying the 13 attributes in the synagogue, or Yom Kippur, let's say, Smichot, whatever, what do we say? Hashem Hashem Kerachum Bechadun, Erech Apayim Vrav Chesed Vemet, Notzer Chesed Walofim, Notzer Avon Vofesha Vichata Vinake. We even sing it sometimes, right? Right. Is there a problem with that? Anything bother you? It's all, it's all good, right? It's all good. So you left out and you left out the third and fourth, did you? No, we, don't, we don't mention the third and fourth. That's not the end of the world. We don't want to mention that. There's something else that's pretty problematic. We're so used to saying it, we have no idea what we're actually saying. The way it's, the way it's written in the Torah is this, obviously. You can read the... If you know how to lane, it's very good. The trup is a punctuation, but it's not, you don't even need it. It's a, in, what it says in the Chumash is, Hashem Hashem kerachum v'chalim erech ha'payim v'rav chesed v'emed, v'tzer chesed al-ofim, v'osei avon v'fesha. No, avon v'fesha v'chata'ah. That period. Then the Torah says, v'nakeh lo yinakeh. But God will not completely wipe clean the slate. V'nakeh lo yinakeh. God doesn't wipe it clean. Sin is still there. Sin has to be paid for. But we don't read it that way. We read, and God will wipe clean the slate. It's exactly the opposite of what the Chumash says. The Chumash says, and we say, which makes zero. I mean, it's totally against the Chumash. So, I mean, yes, it demonstrates the power of rabbinic interpretation. Now, the point is. I remember hearing many years ago from Rabbi Soloveitchik, I think it's actually the Pshat, the Gemara says the following, the, the Midot, Gemara says, it says V'nakeh, it says V'nakeh, it says V'lo'yinakeh. How's that possible? So the Gemara says, V'nakeh, God will wipe clean the slate for those who repent. V'lo'yinakeh, for those who don't repent. So the way we read it, actually, the way we say it in the synagogue, we have, we're interpreting the verse. 
God is going to forgive everything and wipe clean the slaves. The continuation of the verse, refers to a different group of people, those that don't repent. For them, it's, it's visited upon the third and fourth generation. But for those who repent, now obviously, that's not the plain meaning of the text. The plain meaning of the text, obviously, is the Chumash is saying that God will forgive, but somehow it sounds like the sin is still around. The sin's got to be paid for in some way. And here we come to... Um, by the way, let me just say that in terms of repentance, the whole issue of repentance is a fascinating topic. And there's more than one approach. Even within the Bible, there are different statements. You have the very, very, very famous passages in Yechezkel, which seems to contradict what the Chumash says. And it's the whole discussion about tshuva. That itself is an unbelievably interesting topic. But let me say one thing about the end of this. That God visits the sins upon the third and fourth generation. There's something interesting about that idea that God is visiting the sin upon the third... As I said, at its core, what it seems to be saying is that the sin exists. What the Chumash here seems to be saying, there are other texts elsewhere. What the Chumash says, I, I did something wrong. Now I'm very sorry. Okay, you're sorry, that's great. But you still did it, you know what I mean? You still did it. So, how do we account for that, for that reality? Now the Talmud discusses that in, in several places. The Talmud comes up with the idea, among other things, that for some people, sometimes, the sin becomes even, not just wiped off altogether, but it becomes even a positive thing. Zedonot, Nasu Zichuyot, the Gemara says. How's that possible? That's another, we should have a course on this. This stuff is beyond belief interesting. Chu is a very interesting topic. Within, within the Jewish tradition, outside the Jewish tradition, requires a lot of work. But let me make a very simple point about this. this the Yudhul Midot, in one form or another, appear in about seven or eight places in the Bible. Seven or eight places in the Bible. Most famously, in two other places. The most famous place they appear is in the second big sin of the desert, the episode of the spies. In the episode of the spies, in chapter 14 of Bamidbar, the sin is in chapter 13, and the conversation with God is chapter 14. There God once again threatens, as God is doing, to destroy all the people. God says to Moshe, let me destroy this people. I had enough with them already. They rejected me. They don't want to go into the land. They're going to go back to Egypt. Enough. I'll make you a nation. And then Moshe once again intervenes. There you go again, he says. You know, let's, Moshe intervenes, and Moshe succeeds in saving the Jewish people. What's interesting is there, in that story of the spy episode, chapter 14 of Numbers. Numbers chapter 14. In that story, Moshe, among other things, mentions the attributes of mercy. But, he doesn't mention all of them. He mentions them selectively. He leaves out some of the attributes. And what's interesting is what he leaves out. And what's also interesting is what he puts in. Not adds, but what he includes. He leaves out, first of all, do you find it in chapter 14? Yes. What, what page is it? Page 314. Okay, 314, verse 18. He leaves out 
first of all, he starts, he doesn't start with our text and our story of the golden calf. The key attributes, obviously, are the first two. That is Rachel and Chana. Because God said earlier, I'm going to appear before you. But in this episode of the spies, Moshe leaves them out. Moshe has, starts with Erech the long-suffering God. Moshe leaves out Rachel and Chalon. He also leaves out another quality, he leaves out truth. He doesn't mention Abed. doesn't mention truth. Now those can be understood in a very simple way. And, then, and actually very relevant to what we're studying. Moshe is, among other things, he has a skill at prayer. I would say skill at prayer is not just a skill at prayer. That skill of prayer is a very good skill to have in general. The word we use for it nowadays is uh, he knows how to uh, negotiate. How to negotiate means you tell the truth, but you find the point that the other person is going to respond to. So, Rachum v'chanu, let's take the golden calf. What is v'chanu tiyat asher There, the Torah, what the Torah is saying is very simple. The story of the golden calf, it's embedded in the Mishkan. Moses' goal was one goal. I want you to walk with the people. Forget me. I want you to go with the people. He talks about himself because he knows God won't go with the people right away. Go with me, I'm with them, you're with them. Fine. At the end of the day, the story of the golden calf is about God's relationship to Israel. Moses is a broker. He's a negotiator. He's a representative. He prays for us. It's all true. At the end of the day, it's about the relationship with the people. And the book of Exodus ends on a very high note. The people in God have reestablished their connection. That's the book of Exodus. And when God says, I'm going to destroy the people, Moshe said to God, how could you do that? The people you took out of Egypt. First of all, I didn't take them out of Egypt. You did. But number two, what about your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You swore to give them the land. Have you forgotten? Me? I'm not interested. You have to keep your word. God, God relents. Okay, I'll do it. It's fine. I agree. I keep my word. Fine. Then we go to the spy story. The people send the spies into the land. Not really spies. Promotional men. Whatever they are. They come back. Oh, they're big, powerful lands. But it eats up, it, it eats up its, its inhabitants. We can't go there. They will destroy us. They are giants. We're grasshoppers. That's how they see us. We see ourselves. People, let's go back to Egypt. Let's dump Moses. Let's go back to Egypt. And then God gets angry. So what is Moshe going to say to God? Remember the promise about you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God would laugh. What promise? To give them the land? I'm not giving them the land. They don't want to go. What do you mean? The grasshoppers don't want to go. What do you mean give them the land? They're interested. So Moshe can't say that. Moshe, what's he going to say? He says something different. He says, Erech First of all, forget Rachel and Chanan, forget the relationship. Erech means the long-suffering God. I know it's painful, you've got to suffer with it. Right? And maybe the truth, of the truth is that they deserve to be punished. Let's leave out truth. Let's emphasize the patient, the patient God. But then, he's, he wants to buy time. I'll destroy them as one. Don't, 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 don't move so quickly. And then we have a very, very interesting feature of Moses' prayer in the spy episode. What's interesting is that Moshe mentions in the spy episode He mentions the fact that God visits the sins of the parents upon the children. But he doesn't mention, unbelievably, that God's kindnesses are for the thousands. 
He leaves that out. You would think he would mention that. He would say, look, I understand you're angry, but remember your fundamental nature, you're so merciful. You get a little angry. Why does Moshe mention the... He mentions Pokeda of Onavota Abonim, but he leaves out Osechesed Lalafim. It's remarkable. And the answer is this, I believe. That Moshe is engaged in an act of reinterpretation. The Yudgil Midot, in fact, he reinterprets them. It's part of why we call Torah Shabbat Peh. The classic example of Torah Shabbat Peh are the Yudgil Midot, Moses himself, and he's reinterpreting God's name. This is God's name. I am God, this is my name. Racham, and I got a lot of names. Racham, and Chan, and Erechah. That's who I am. You know what it is? I'm very, I'm very strict on this. So when someone says, I say, what is your name? And they can't tell me their name. I don't care what it is. I always call them by their name. I never call them anything else but their name. Some people, they nicknames, just, I never do that. Someone wants to be called so-and-so. That's, that's their decision. Everybody should honor that decision. That's what it took to a human being. It took to God. It's certainly true. My name is Rachel Munchanu, Erechab Hashem Hashem. God's describing who God is. And Moshe has the audacity to change it. <laughs> the chutzpah boggles the mind. But that's what we call Torah Shabbat Peh. That's the idea of reinterpretation. It boggles the mind. So what is Moses reinterpreting? Moses reinterprets Poket Avon Avot Abonim as a positive. He's arguing, he wants Poket Avon. Because what did God say? I'm going to destroy them all. That's it, I'm, I'm done with them destroying them. They have no... So what does Moses say to God? Not so quickly. Don't punish them right away. Wait, give them 40, punish them for 40 years. And during those 40 years, yes, the children also will wander around the desert. Maybe they have grandchildren. In a certain sense, he wants the punishment to be meted out. I would call it the kind of distributive view of punishment. Because when you distribute over the generations, he, Moses interprets to mean you lessen the punishment for each generation. What allows the next generation to survive? The first generation is killed out, they're destroyed. That's the end. Then the young ones have no future. So Moshe says, "Don't do that. Be an erech hapayim. Take, take, think of, take, take the longer view, and distribute the punishment over time. Now, distributing over time means the young ones also wander for forty years. If they're born, they're going to wander. Those that are not born won't. They wander for twenty years, for ten, but they also have to wander." which is the big punishment of the Torah, exile. So in fact, he's asking God to be pokeda vona vota banim. He actually reinterprets, in the, in the, one might even read that initially into the meaning of the text, you don't have to. But Moshe actually leaves out also chesed He's not interested in that. He wants pokeda vona vota banim. It's an act of reinterpretation. And what is God's response to Moses? By Yomer Hashem, God's response is, yes, I'm not going to destroy them. Yes, they're going to wander for 40 years. So Moshe wants, probably. They wander for 40 years. They're going to die. And the kids that they rejected, they'll possess the land. And all this God introduces by saying four words. By Yom, well, the text is two words. By Yomer Hashem, God's response to Moshe is, as you say, I, I agree with you. Now, I could talk about this for a long time, no limits, but I'll mention one thing as we conclude. Coming back to Yom Kippur, which is the liturgy of Yom Kippur, what's interesting is how the slichot, how the liturgy constructs the slichot, actually. 
Let's start, for example, I'll mention two things, five minutes, let me mention two things. First of all, we enter into Yom Kippur, we the Jewish people, enter into Yom Kippur every year with a very peculiar custom that we have. Just before Yom Kippur, we have the custom to make some kind of a ceremony in which we publicly annul the vows of the Jewish people. It's known as Kol, Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre service is on its face a public ceremonial, ceremonial nullification of last year's vows. So what's the big deal? So the big deal is, there is a big deal to it. After we say the Kol Nidre, and the Kol Nidre is typical, typically recited by the leader, the Chazim, but typically, the Chazim doesn't stand alone during Kol Nidre. During Kol Nidre, two other people are standing with the Chazim. Correct? Typically, in the Orthodox service, it's that way. It's two men standing with the Chazim in the Orthodox service. In the non-Orthodox service, I don't know what they do, actually. I have no idea. I don't care for what they do. The traditional custom is to have a, three, at least. And the reason you have three is that it is a, it is a court. The tradition is to have three for Kol Nidre, because knowing a nullification of vows requires a, a baton. Ceremonial, but you have a court. There is a, tr- a custom in many synagogues that during the davening on Yom Kippur, two people stand next to the Chazan during the entire davening. We, we do that. Two people stand next to the Chazan. It's an old custom that the court, which convened, convenes for Kol Nidre, in a sense remains throughout Yom Kippur. All this I can't explain now, but it's a very. But after Kol Nidre is recited, say three times, whatever, and the Chazan says says two things. First, the Chazan, then remember what the Chazan says. He quotes a verse from the book of Bamidbar. Where is that verse from? It literally means the sins of all of Israel shall be forgiven. They have acted bishkaga without without knowledge. They've sinned unwittingly. Chazan says that verse. It's repeated three times. That's from the chapter 15 of Bamidbar. Chapter 15. It means in its context, Benislach in Hebrew has two different meanings. If you know Hebrew, Biblical Hebrew, but you say Biblical Hebrew. Benislach has two different meanings. Benislach can be a passive. It shall be forgiven. Benislach can also be a, a uh, future plural. Uh, we shall, v'nislach can mean we shall forgive, we will forgive. In the Kol Nidre service, actually, the verse of the Chumash means it shall be forgiven. But in the Kol Nidre service, it's actually the Chazan speaking for the court. We the court have heard and we are forgiving the sins. The term slicha, forgiveness, is applied in our liturgy and in the Talmud to when the court forgives or nullifies a vow. The term slicha is used. And then the Chazan says, people repeat that verse. You understand that Numbers chapter 15 is one chapter after number, Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14 is the story of the spies. When the sins of all of Israel, Moshe prays for all of Israel. Chapter 15 is playing off chapter 14. And the court is saying, we are forgiving the sins. We, the court, forgive. And then the Chazan says another verse. Avona Amazek Godo Chastecha, Vikashana Sata, 
forgive the sins of this people as you have borne them from Egypt until now. And the community hears and says, repeats four words, three times, and the Chazan says, after which the Chazan says something else. What is awesome service. What does the Chazan say after that? That's when you begin Yom Kippur. It's beyond belief. What is going on? What's, what's actually happening in So the point is, first of all, the court stands in the place of God. That's number one. Nullification of vows does not exist in the Torah. On the contrary. As the Mishnah says, it's floating in the air. There's, we have no basis for it. What's, on the contrary. It seems to contradict portions of the Bible. We believe that we have the power to, to change, to, to, to nullify the vow. Or even an oath, take it in God's name. The court can say you're off the hook. And you are forgiven. Forgiveness. And then, means, the Chumash God said to Moses, as you say, I, I forgive. It means, as the court says. We, the court, have declared you innocent. And now God is saying, as God answered Moshe, as you say, if you forgive them, I will forgive them. So what that, what your Kalnidri actually does is to place the burden upon the people. That's what's so terrifying. Forget God. It's not just, a, it's always an act of grace, but it, basically we are responsible. We can achieve forgiveness, but it's our job to do it. That's what Yom, how we introduce Yom Kippur. It's a big task we have ahead of us on Yom Kippur to arrive at a place where we can be forgiven. But my point I want to make is very simple. The Yom Kippur service, then we say Ma'ariv, we say Slichot. The Slichot service, which is the main service on the Kol Nidre night, after Kol Nidre, it's a very beautiful service, that we say several times, Hashem Hashem Kel Rachum V'chanu. To introduce, El Erech Elki, Kel Melech Yosheva Kisei Rachamim. God, you taught Moses, you taught Moses to say these, this, 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 these attributes. Forgive us through the attributes. And we mentioned, Hashem Vayavra Hashem Alpanav. What's interesting about the davening on Yom Kippur is that you have a constant conflation of two different things. One is the story of the golden calf, Hashem Hashem Kelachum V'chanun, and the second is the story of the spies, Hashem which was Moses' reinterpretation of the Yud Gimel Midot. It's very striking. So what the liturgy is playing off is a, tr- a very deep truth in the Chumash that these Midot are actually handed over to Moses. And then Moshe plays with the Midot as necessary. Depends on the circumstance. Sometimes all the Midot are in place. There could be situations where we don't want to say something to the Midot. They're not going to help us out. They're useless. Rachum v'chanun. Moshe knows that's not the right thing to ask for. Because the people aren't interested. Please reconcile with the people. And God would say, they don't want me. What do we have me reconcile? They want to go back to Mitzrayim. What's, what's to reconcile here? I can't. It's not possible. So Moshe doesn't ask for that. He has Erech Hapayim. Each situation is different. That's part of the Torah Shabbat Peh, is to figure out how the Torah continues to speak in each circumstance. That's what it's all about, actually.